You're listening to Music Tectonics. Hey, welcome back to Music Tectonics. I'm your host, Dimitri Vitsa, the CEO and founder of Rock, Paper, Scissors. We're a music tech PR firm that decided to start a podcast about music and technology and the things beneath the surface that are changing the music industry. I have with me Tristra Newyear Yeager. Hello. Our writer strategist at Rock, Paper, Scissors. And we're going to do something a little different. Usually when Tristra and I get on the episodes, we'll do news roundups. But today we're kind of having fun exploring the different seismic shifts that are happening beneath the surface in music. And we've identified some. And we want to explore one in particular today, which I have called Music is More Global Than Ever. So much changing in the music world, in the streaming world. And it's interesting to think about how the shifts from physical to digital have made... um, the, the the world's smaller really yeah it's 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 fascinating and um it's amazing how it's also changed in some ways the the balance in the mix so to speak excuse the corny metaphor of of other markets and other places places that have um, lots of populations that share a culture and language more or less um, but that never really had the clout in the international music business that would you know, that their population would suggest. So it's really cool to see, for instance, India getting uh, more attention or um, certain markets in South America, Mexico. It's really, really exciting. And I think it's a really interesting time in terms of both creative output and um, business strategy and artist strategy. And, and, and distribution and marketing, getting out to, to those different markets. Um, there's a couple different lenses we could look through. Let's look at just uh, demographics and population alone. Um, You know, the United States, where we are, has always had kind of an outsized impact given that it's not the most populous country in the world. And as technology continues to uh, kind of get more traction in other parts of the world, especially in a digital music marketplace, um, you start to see some things where, say, India or parts of Africa or parts of Asia are kind of leapfrogging certain digital eras that we went through. If, you know, people are basically going from no phone to smartphone or from no internet to phone internet, and now there's these cloud-based systems to ingest and enjoy and listen to and consume, and all those words, some good, some bad, music, that there are huge populations that are getting turned on instantly for the listening of music. And there's also some really interesting opportunities if you think about um, South Korea, for instance, and the incredible investments that they have made, um, the, the, the state has made and that private entities have made into music, pop music, as well as more traditional or, um, you know, avant-garde music as well. And exporting that, um, the, it really shows that really carefully executed, smart planning can have a huge global impact. I mean, if you look at K-pop's explosion worldwide, and um, I mean, Korea always had a real big influence in certain Asian countries. I remember here, I'm going to throw in my favorite country in Asia, Mongolia. Um, you go to Mon- used to go to Mongolia, and what all the hip-hop um, that people would be listening to in their cab, et cetera, would be Korean. Um, and wow. yeah, it was really amazing. It had a big influence on the Mongolian hip hop community. So it was a, more, more so than even, you know, straight from America, though, of course, Mongolian MCs were listening to American rappers as well. But, 
Um, that aside, so Korea always had a strong regional presence in certain parts of Asia, and it's really just blossomed worldwide and, and started to inspire, I think, um, you know, Anglo um, artists and um, other, other cultures. It's really fascinating. I want to go back to this idea, especially about hip hop as a global language. Absolutely. Because that's something that, that's, I think it's, it's important and relevant to talk about. But before we go there, the other lens that I wanted to bring up was this idea that in the physical music world, when you had music primarily being um, uh, listened to via CDs, vinyl, um, cassettes, there was a distribution challenge because you had an actual physical product that either needed to be brought somewhere or the IP needed to be brought somewhere and manufactured somewhere and then distributed. And so the difference between unlocking uh, different international markets or territories or regions because of those limitations and unlocking those territories in a digital era have changed so many things around listening habits and also around how do you get your music out there, the idea of international global release days and things like that were pretty much impossible in a physical yeah, era. Yeah, they were a serious pain in the butt, If even if they weren't impossible. They were a really, really hard a hurdle to clear. And you had to struggle with what if something got leaked in a territory before you were ready or before it was being released by the legitimate rights holders of that. Um, and that has its whole a whole other um, spin in the digital era as well. But I think that's an interesting factor in that it's hard to not release things globally now, whereas you could go region by region in the past, or you had to in some cases because of distribution. Yeah, it is... Um it's definitely made certain things a lot smoother and in, and in some ways like ironed things out. Um, and I, as I recall back in the day, you'd have to get licensing deals with a regional label. Uh, for instance, if you were an artist who wanted to make a big global splash, um, and there were other, uh, business interests and other concerns you'd have to keep in mind, like sub publishing deals and things like that. I know sub publishing is still very much a, a alive and kicking, but, um, it was a necessity back then. And now, um, things are, there's global agreements between various PROs and, and, um, it's starting to really change. That landscape's changing really quickly too. It's very interesting. So going back to the what we touched on 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 kind of hip hop as a global language, it's intriguing to see two things. I think along that, well, maybe three things. One being um, people using that kind of now global language, but in their own language, you yeah. know. And um, and the other is you know, people um, singing in maybe English or other languages just because that's what they've they've heard as well. And then the third category would be um, these, kind of like what you were talking about with Mongolian and Korean music interaction, like these unexpected relationships, at least from a certain vantage point, that you'd be surprised that, you know, if you look at the some of the global Spotify playlists, for example, you can see some strong patterns with Spanish language, even if it's not from a Latin country. Yeah, it was as I was mentioning before we started uh, started chatting. There was uh, for the podcast, I got a, something popped up on a playlist I was listening to. It was an Arabic, um, I think from North Africa, uh, hip hop track that had a whole bunch of Spanish and English kind of shout outs and hype hype stuff going on. And I was like, this is this is wild. I, I had to kind of replay it because like, did I hear what I thought I just heard? Or like, am I completely, you know, sleep deprived or something? It was it was wild. So I think we're going to see more and more of those kind of combinations. I mean, Bollywood has been masterful at doing that for decades. A lot of Bollywood composers and performers have brought in all sorts of 
crazy sounds from all over and just made it feel like one big, um, fun, cool track. But that's going to be the norm. I mean, we could argue, of course, making predictions about the future is always really ridiculous, but it feels like that's a, a, a cultural um, aesthetic that is going to become more and more accepted to people and will seem less oddball or quirky or unusual um, to people all over the world, not just in particular scenes or, or, or sounds. Yeah, and um, I'm also noticing a lot of kind of the the Latin dance rhythm, electronic dance, kind of with a Latin sound to it, the Latin pop rhythms are making their way into a lot of different uh, styles as well from different countries too. So you'll hear um, uh, some, some kind of Indian Bollywood kind of stuff with a Latin rhythm or Arabic stuff with a Latin rhythm. And, and you see those playlists coming together in ways that you wouldn't, in a previous year, you wouldn't see those songs side by side. But not only are the songs side by side, but the, the genres are kind of melding into one. Um, and I don't mean one homogenous, but like a hybrid of sorts. Yeah, we're... Um one thing to that I, I read recently, I think of some folks that were considering China and the way it has um, ingested and made its own a lot of Western artifacts and practices and um, uh, cultural habits. Uh, it, the, their their uh, way of understanding it was that globalization is not a flattening. Um, mechanism the way it's often talked about is it's like oh it's all going to become the same it's all going to sound the same we're all going to make the same music and that doesn't really seem to be happening um, globalization according to these writers was bumpy and I kind of loved that I loved the idea um, of two big tectonic plates bumping up against each other rubbing against each other maybe there's some friction but there's also a lot of energy there and creating these new contours um, to pop culture that could then be heard by a completely different listener in a completely different context and completely reimagined. I mean, a lot of us, we're not, you know, everyone everywhere is often going into something totally blind and or, or completely uninformed about what the cultural background of the person performing this music is, maybe even what they're saying in the lyrics. And you can really take it and make it your own. It's a completely kind of, those sounds can become your, um, you know, something you can bounce your own imagination off of and make your own, make your own uh, music from. I, th I've mentioned, I think I've mentioned this on a past Music Tectonics podcast, but I, I think of the um, early reggae that was getting influenced by um, American kind of like Motown music mm -hmm. and then um, com literally coming across the, the radio airwaves um, from out of country in, into Jamaica and some of those early sounds being influenced that way or the, some of the African um, you know, music the, that was based on some of the stuff they were hearing from Cuba, for example, and some of the, the songs that were sung uh, phonetically to go to go with what the music they were listening to those were harder I mean it happened it's happened for you know oh yeah centuries probably in other yes. ways as well from travel routes and, and things like that trade routes but uh, now this ability of crossing uh, borders and and releasing things globally means that there's so much interaction between uh, cultural music forms and styles and scenes and genres and so forth. Um, I'm probably one of the few people that has recently discovered music on LinkedIn, but <laughs> but I noticed our recent uh, our, our recent PR client at Rock Paper Scissors Waxploitation uh, posted a um, an amazing video of. Uh, uh, back it up, drop it by Duan and uh, Leo Justy, or is it Justy? Yeah, Justy. yeah. Um, 
it was a it was a dance video by One Million Dance Studio, which is a Korean YouTube dance channel. And just to see that music being lip synced and sung along with in in that setting was just so so interesting to see that all the cross cultural interaction that's happening right there. So I guess we should maybe reveal for those who don't know, Rock Paper Scissors, our our PR company, started in the. Uh, world of helping international artists break in America. So we've been a part of kind of these global conversations for 20 years. Um, and it's interesting to see some of this stuff that we've thought about and talked about for all this time circle back around and become kind of like this mainstream uh, seismic shift. Yeah. What was um, hard back then has become easy. And what was easy, you know, 10, 13 years ago was hard, is now hard. So um, what was hard was often convincing people to even listen to certain music. And these were, you know, I'm not, I'm not dissing these people. These are, these were folks who were, you know, music critics, but they're like, I do this kind of music. And to convince them that they should also listen to something that was close to their genre, but from a culture or a community that was different from the people who normally made that music felt like a hard sell sometimes. Um, and Dimitri, you were the master at inventing a way to do that. And, and um, that's really served all of us well as, as PR people, but that's a different story. What's now, so that's become easy. People listen to all sorts of stuff. People are willing to take a lot more risks, especially younger listeners. And that is really encouraging. And, you know, one of those things that makes me smile whenever I think about it. Um, one thing that's become a lot harder is, I think, you know, it is very difficult to um, find ways to talk about um, certain music that doesn't feel like you are pigeonholing it. Um, world music has always been a very difficult label to use and a loaded one, a post-colonially, uh, you know, fraught one. Um, and a lot of more recent labels, sometimes they can feel limiting to artists too. Um, and they're in, in some ways the ideal, the sort of, you know, pie in the sky ideal would be everybody can make whatever music they want, but we still have a lot of power dynamics that are, surfacing and that people are struggling with and we still really lack a, a way to talk about them um, and maybe to make art about them in ways that are um, compelling and helpful and supportive to the people that need more support who've maybe been marginalized or haven't been included in the commercial transactions or haven't gotten their fair share all those things so there's there's still um, some of those things those conversations were a lot easier in the past because you could be like oh this is afropop and everyone's like, oh, cool. And nowadays it's like, what do you mean, Afropop? And there's a long ellipsis after that, right? Um, so it, there's there's a lot of challenges that we still face in understanding and embracing this global state of things. And um, there's a lot of work to be done. And I think in the, in the music industry, in the larger sense, we'll start to see more um, more of a need for kind of a cultural awareness. You don't necessarily have to know everything about every culture that you're interacting with, the publishing catalogs that you're buying in Africa or, yeah. or anything necessarily. But I think even, sure, in the, in the communication about how you talk about the music, there's a certain amount of awareness that's going to be necessary. But I think even in those business dealings, Absolutely. Um, the, you know, they'll, they'll, that'll start to come up more and more for, I think, more people in the music industry who maybe didn't realize... 10 years ago that they were going to have this this cross-cultural role to play and how music has become so much more global. It's a growth opportunity for um for for all of us in a way and um it's a way to increase our curiosity and learn to talk to each other better about the things that really matter to us whether it's music or money or um how we're going to get a certain project done. Um another interesting 
thing that I, I was you know, talking recently to our friends at CD Baby um, about their sync efforts. And um, one really interesting thing they pointed to was the uh, their catalog has a lot of music from a wide range of cultures and a wide range of languages. And that is proven to be a big asset in the sync world. So mm. there are a lot more interesting sync opportunities that are very cross-cultural. So I am a um, coffee company based in Asia, but I would like an ad that has um, sort of a French language swing vibe to it. Um, and so these are the kind of sync placements that, you know, people with big catalogs like CD Baby or also probably there's a lot of other publishers and libraries out there that have uh, the ability to meet the needs of, of sync things like this. But it's fascinating to hear about people are looking for incredibly specific um, cultural, cu culturally cross-pollinated music. Um, and, and it's really um, proving how important it is to keep the whole world in mind as you're making your business plans um, to a certain extent. You know, another thing I think about with this seismic shift of music is more global than ever is about how, uh, you know, the the larger streaming services are, you know, as we kind of plateau a little bit with mm -hmm. um, subscriptions and, and users yeah. in the early adopting countries. Just to throw in there, the Nielsen mid-year report showed definitely a slowdown in growth in the U.S. in uh, music streaming. Anyway, sorry. Yeah, that's exactly <laughs> what I'm talking about. No, that's exactly <laughs> what I'm talking about is that, the, you know, those streaming services still trying to grow to, to profitability of course, are going to the next markets over and the next markets over and so forth. Um, and it's interesting to see, to think about this idea of whether a global streaming company can serve all those markets as well as streaming companies that come from within those markets. Um, is, is it just a matter of attracting those catalogs and setting the algorithms to work or what is the role of curation? Also, what is the role of negotiation of getting the right catalogs within those countries too? Yeah. Because if you don't know the music, you might say, "Oh, we're going to get, we're going to amass a million tracks for this, you know, large country, large population." But maybe it's not the key ones if you don't know the music. That's right. If you're getting all, um, you know, maybe if you're totally forgetting about the Tamil music market in India, for instance, that could be a blunder, depending on where your main user base is going to be. I, th I was going to say there's this, um, I think the thing from, uh, was it from Mark Mulligan, where he talked about how these Indian tracks were showing up on the charts because yeah. of, um, not so much because there were so many people worldwide listening to them, but because they were being listened to so much in India and, yeah. and figuring out how, you know, what's the best representation of global charts now um, if you know, if if some some tracks show up, even though they're not on the um, global listening palette, they're actually they're actually coming from one place, but they're actually influencing what the charts look they're like. They're blazing hot in one particular large market with lots and lots of avid music fans or people with a lot of access to data. Oh, uh, what I, uh, one thing we maybe want to think about if we're talking about sort of the plateau in growth is, and and these new markets. I mean, I'm thinking about something like WhatsApp and the way it's been adapted by um, its user base in very, very different cultures. Um, you know, if you th think about the way it's been used in Brazil or in India, it's really, really, really different from the way most Americans tend to use WhatsApp, though I guess groups and other kind different messaging patterns are starting to uh, pop up here as well. Um, or, or the Philippines and Facebook. I mean, Facebook has become the internet for, or it was for a period of time in the Philippines. Uh, so 
maybe it'll be one of these interesting situations where we see certain music streaming services do get a foothold in a country, but they morph <laughs> into something radically different than the product offering in Norway or in, um, you know, in the U.S. So this could be a really, it could be interesting to see how the localization of these global platforms happens. And to flip it back onto the, the artist side, you know, music is more global than ever. We're starting to hear stories about artists who, you know, maybe don't know where they're going to find their fan base or not sure where their fans are. And they start to look at some of the data they get from streaming services or from distributors and see these little flickers of interest from totally unexpected countries and uh, start to, to build a, you know, a, a, um, a monetization, monetization base somewhere in an unexpected, not in their home country. Yeah, because of, you know, Mexicans have really embraced Spotify, at least some of them. And because it's become such a popular platform, a lot of very obscure bands will have their biggest, you know, monthly listener numbers will be in Mexico City. Uh, So it's I think that's a really interesting thing, too, how these platforms, the platforms that get do get um, embraced in a local area can offer artists who live in a completely different area, oh. interesting data. and Right, you, par- you posted about a chart metric thing about certain cities, cities being trigger cities. Yeah, yeah. That, yeah. Was, that is fascinating. It's hard to summarize their data because it's really, really cool and it's worth reading. Um, they, I think they have these, these extensive analyses up on their blog and they're totally, please go read them, they're awesome. So, but it was certain, certain cities were quick to adopt lesser known artists and those yes. would become kind of triggers or indications that something might pop in other markets later. Yeah, it's very interesting. Yeah, they're like the the it's like a gang of millions of tastemakers. <laughs> if you different kind of gatekeeping there. If you haven't listened to the music tectonics episode um where we uh basically recorded the keynote at Meetum by Mark Mulligan from Media Research. Um, there's a lot of interesting takeaways around music is more global than ever from that conversation. Another one that we haven't brought up yet on this conversation is sort of how, in a similar way to these trigger cities, there's some trigger cities around um, user interface and adoption of technology and how people are interacting with content. And he pointed out that um, one-to-one messaging was bigger in Asia for, for a lot longer before it went west, basically, mm-hmm. and that people in the business world here thought that's, you know, that's not going to be relevant here. That's just something they do there, and now we're seeing more and more um, adoption of one-to-one messaging or, or group private messaging as opposed to you know, the more social media format of broadcasting to everywhere. Um, and you, know, you see that with TikTok, obviously. That's, that's something that came from, from China and um, is now getting mass adoption worldwide and uh, just just knowing like there may be some places that are indications of what kinds of music experiences what kind of interfaces and what kind of traction could come from those um, is interesting to think about as you think about global I mean in the same way we talked about there may be places where music is popping up first as an indication just because of some sort of cultural listening habits in those places Um, there's also things to be learned I think for uh, music tech startups for example yeah, that's a good good point. So this is our seismic shift. Music is more global than ever. We're just having a conversation about it. <laughs> <laughs> just we just you know just spent years living this, and and now it's great to be able to to share it with you. <laughs> <laughs> and I think it's becoming more 
relevant and prevalent to more parts of the music industry as well. So, yeah, it's really exciting. Um, this is the kind of stuff we'll be talking about at Music Tectonics of the Conference, which is taking place October 28th and 29th, 2019 in Los Angeles. Um, we're about to announce a amazing local partner in LA for our opening party on the 28th. Uh, very few people have made it to this uh, spot, so stay tuned to find out about that. And on the 29th, we'll be at the Skirball Cultural Center, and we've gotten feedback on emails of people saying, I've never heard of this place, but I've looked at it. This is going to be awesome because it's a real architectural gem in LA. We're trying to build a different type of an experience for conferences. Conferences have been uh, hu huge and very valuable to us as a company, Rock, Paper, Scissors. First thing I did when I started my company was pretty much go to the, the main international music conference, which was taking place in Berlin, and walked away with business. And ever since then, we've gone to South by Southwest and to um, Collision and to SF Music Tech and to um, A2IM's Indie Music Week, all these great conferences, Music Biz in Nashville. And, you know, we get to meet people, have great networking opportunities, learn new things, have our brains shifted in tectonic ways. And we're hoping to create a, a really special experience in LA. So check out musictectonics.com and sign up for our newsletter to keep posted about that event. You can also get a $50 discount code to the conference. Tristra, this has been fun. Let's do this again sometime. Sure, sounds great. All right, keep listening to Music Tectonics and uh, please make sure to to hit uh, subscribe on your favorite uh, podcast system. Talk to you soon. Bye. You're listening to Music Tectonics.